Psalm 92 is where we're going to be today for our text. I find it fitting, a fitting time of the year to emphasize the great, uh, the great need of thankfulness and uh, focusing on that. And uh, the Psalms have much to say about that. And I am thankful for that myself because we need the reminder of this. And so we're going to be in Psalms 92. We're going to be looking at verse 1 through 15. We're going to take the chapter and expound it together. And I pray that we can glean some things that would encourage us, that would help us to see some things and, uh, and edify us in our Christian life today. How many of us are thankful to be in God's house? Amen. Amen. It's always a good thing to be with God's people. Psalm 92, verse 1 through 15. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. To the music of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. How great are your works, O Lord! Your thoughts are very deep. The stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this. That though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. But you, O Lord, are on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. But you have exalted my horn like that of a wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my assailants. The righteous flourish like the palm tree and grow like a cedar of Lebanon. They are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. They still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock. There is no unrighteousness in him. The title of the message comes from the opening verse. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. That one phrase really struck me and struck my heart as I came upon this message this week. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Now, there's many good things that you can do in this world that are right and needful. It is good to be kind to others. It is good to work hard and to give your best. It is good to steward your life wisely. It is good to do many things that are beneficial. But central to all the good things that we could do in this world... Understand that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. Why is it good to give thanks to the Lord? Well, to put it simply, what do you have without the Lord? Nothing. Nothing. What do you have without the Lord? Nothing. There is no good that we could have or bestow on another without the Lord. We live and move and have our being because of the Lord. He is our creator. He is the one who has given us history, given us the world, given us our body, gives us the air we breathe, the food we eat, the water we drink, the clothes on our back. All that you own comes from a source. All that we are comes from a source. And that all comes back to the Lord himself. This is one reason we teach our children at a young age the practice of thanking the Lord for what we have even the very meals in which we eat. Every time we sit down, we thank God and tell our children that God has provided this. Would you like to come preach? <laughs> hey, I'll let him. <laughs> Isn't it good to have kids in the service? 
A church that doesn't have any children is in trouble. We're thankful for that. Very thankful for that. We teach our children to thank the Lord and to be content with what they have. You know, David is one who loves to eat. The first thing he does in the morning, he wants to eat breakfast. And we're eating dinner, sat down to eat dinner, and we've prayed and thanked the Lord for the food. And we haven't even ate a bite yet. And he immediately asks, can I have more after this? <laughs> and, and uh, well, start with what you got, son, and be thankful for that. And, and then we'll see how it goes at the end. And sure enough, he was full at the end. He didn't eat any more. Uh, but that's kind of how our minds work sometimes. We know as God's people to give thanks. But there are many people in this world that do not give thanks to the Lord. They do not give any regard to God whatsoever. The thanks and praise that he rightfully deserves. You see, the psalmist is going to point out that truth in this text that we've read. But what the psalmist also points out is the necessity for God's people to be a people who continually give thanks and praise to the Lord because he's worthy of such. Not only does he give us the exhortation to give thanks and praise, he gives us the reason why we should give thanks and praise to the Lord. So let's take inventory to our own hearts today as we consider this. How thankful of a person am I? How, praise, how much praise do I really give God in my life? Notice in our notes this morning, I've broken it down to three headings and we'll come through these together. The psalmist's assertion for praise. Number one, the psalmist's assertion of praise. He's asserting this need. He's asserting this call to God's people. And that is that God's people here are called to thank God. And praise him. Now, as you come through this psalm, the context of it is that this is a hymn. It is a song of praise, especially in reference to the Sabbath and worshiping God. We see the elements of worship within this text. And it is good for us to recognize that, that every time we gather to worship on the Lord's Day, we are gathering with a thankful heart. With a heart of praise, we gather to thank the Lord because of who He is and what He's done on behalf of us. We praise Him for the same reason, right? But you'll notice that the psalmist says in verse 1 that it is good to give thanks to the Lord. I just have to pause and ponder that statement. It is good to give thanks to the Lord. Do you want to do what is good in light of the Scriptures? Then give thanks to the Lord. That's what you can do. Give thanks to the Lord. Have a heart of thankfulness. Thankfulness is indeed an element of worship. But you understand that thankfulness is not limited to only when we gather for worship, nor is it limited to one holiday or week throughout the year. You see, for the Christian, thankfulness is not a one-time event in the year. It is a daily, continual heart we ought to have. Listen to the Psalms as they repeat this. Psalm 106.1, Praise the Lord! Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 107, 1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Psalm 118, 19. Open to me the gates of righteousness, that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. Time doesn't allow me to give you all the references and quotes that we could give. But from the scriptures, it is unmistakable that God's people must be a thankful people, for thankfulness is an element of worship for which we are created. We are created to worship our God. We are made to worship our God. Thomas Watson, the Puritan of old, said, A godly man is a thankful man. Praise and thanksgiving is the work of heaven. And he begins that work here which he shall always be doing in heaven. You understand, Christian, that heaven will be 
ongoing, eternal thankfulness and praise to the God who saved us. Interwoven into this worship of thanksgiving is the psalmist saying in verse 1b, he says, to sing praises to your name almost high. You know, people wonder, why do we sing when we gather together? Why don't we just read a little bit of scripture? Why do we sing? Because singing is an element of worship. Singing is an expression of praise and thankfulness to our God. And you'll notice that who we sing to. He says, sing praises in your, to your name, O Most High. Whenever you and I gather for singing, you're not singing to impress me or other people around you. Every time we gather to sing, we sing for the audience of one person. And his name is Jesus. You know what that means, church? We ought to sing with all of our might and not care what anybody thinks about it. This place ought to be a sounding board of praise. It ought to be a place in which we sing with our hearts. We ought not to mumble through the hymns, but rather we ought to sing, friend. Sing unto God. I don't care how you sound. I don't care how I sound. Just sing. Sing because we praise Him and He's worthy of this praise and it expresses the thankfulness of our heart. But notice what else our singing does and what it accomplishes in worship. In verse 2, He says, To declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. Why do we sing? Well, if you notice the words in which we sing, what do they communicate? They communicate the truths of the Scripture that God has given to us of our redemption, of his creation, of all that he is and all that we are and what he's done for us, right? Our praise unto the Lord is an outward testimony of the steadfast love of God that he has bestowed upon his people. We testify that every time we sing, it displays his grace. When we sing, we display that God has saved us. When we sing, we display that God has secured us. We sing that we, we display that, that God is the one who sustains us and strengthens us, that He is our God. You understand, Christian, that we owe everything to the steadfast love of God. Because the steadfast love, understand, it's, it's not just this general love statement. It is a deep, intimate affection that God has purposed upon His people. This steadfast love is a covenant love to those who are in Christ. We owe everything to that. You also notice the bookends of this has each day consisting of thankfulness and praise. He says in the morning, he says by night, declaring these things. Are these the bookends of your days? Thankfulness and praise. We ought to begin our days that way. We ought to thank our God every day that we get to get up and have a whole new day of life. Because every breath you breathe and every heartbeat that your heart beats is because God has ordained it and allowed it and given it to you. Every night that you get to lay down your head upon the pillow to go to sleep, thank God for that. Some people didn't get to do that the next day. Some people did not make it to that next night of going to sleep, hoping to wake to another day. We see the element of praise further expressed here in verse 3. He says, through the music and the, of, the, of the lute and the harp and the melody of the lyre. You see, this is the music played by God's people when they gather for worship. And music is indeed pleasing, a pleasing tune to God, especially when it is used for his praise. Now, you combine music with praise, and we have the glorious manifestation of worship, right? We have that. This is what we're called to do. This is what our God is worthy of. But notice with me, letter B. 
that God's people have cause to thank and praise Him. We see the call. The call is plain. It is good to give thanks and to sing praise to the Lord. But notice there's this cause that He gives to us, which is so rich and deep for us. In verse 4, He says, For you, O Lord, have made me glad by your work. At the works of your hands I sing for joy. You know what the psalmist recognizes here? He recognizes that the works of the Lord have come from him alone, and he's been a beneficiary of those works. What are these works exactly? Well, they could refer to anything and everything that the Lord has done on behalf of his people. What had the Lord done on behalf of the psalmist, his people, the Israelites? The Lord had chosen them. He had called them out of the world as his own. He redeemed them from bondage, protected them and sustained them in the wilderness, brought them into their promised land, gave them their, 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 their temple, their worship, his word, his presence. All of this are his works. They are deep for them. But you understand that the depths of God's works, they reach to us, friend. Christian, consider the works of God on behalf of you. What has he done for you? We don't have time to go into all that, do we? But just to summarize, look with me at Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5 for a moment. This is, I think, is a good brief description of the works of God towards his people. Psalm 103, verse 1 through 5, and then verse 11 and 12. David, the author here, says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What are his benefits? What are his works towards us? Listen, who forgives all your iniquity. Who heals all your diseases. Who redeems your life from the pit. Who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. Who satisfies you with good so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. Forgiveness, healing, redemption. Crowning, satisfaction. You look at verse 11 through verse 12 for a moment and, and just to further emphasize this. Notice David writes, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. Any of you measure the east from the west? You can't. You know why? Because it's immeasurable. God has removed your iniquity, forgiven you of that in Christ. Consider the immeasurable benefits and blessings of the Lord upon you, both spiritually and physically, both eternally and temporally. We, we understand that in Christ we have salvation, we have forgiveness, we have eternal life. We don't have to fear the grave. But even in this life, temporally, in this earth, God's goodness is bestowed upon us beyond measure, friends. Beyond measure, we take for granted the, the very simple things that we experience in life that are a result of his goodness towards us. This is why there is reason. There's not one reason, may I say. There's not one reason, not one, that any Christian should be unthankful or without praise to God. You look at verse 5 and notice what he says. He says, how great are your works? O oh Lord, your thoughts are very deep. You see, the psalmist stands in awe 
of the depth of God's character and his works, his thoughts. Because his thoughts and his works go hand in hand. He stands in awe of God. Should not we stand in awe of God? I think today the awe of God, even among some of God's people, is lacking. We are so consumed and turmoiled about the world and things around us that we forget to just sit back and realize again who God is and who we are. Psalm 22, 23. David writes, you who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel. You see, there is not enough awe in God's people today because we're too easily drawn away by other things, the motions of life. We forget the great depths of God's thoughts and his works towards us. The psalmist recognizes that that God's works flow from his deep thoughts His intricate plans. Notice he says your thoughts are very deep. Very deep. Now there are a lot of deep thinkers in this world from a human perspective. But none could ever think or could ever think as deeply as the infinite God has thought. We think we got things figured out sometimes, don't we? We think we do. We've thought it through deeply. Oh, the depth and the riches of the knowledge and wisdom of God. How inscrutable are his ways. He is a deep thinker. Now you consider the depths of thoughts in God's plan. That every minute detail of creation, history, and redemption has brought forth and come forth from his thoughts. All the way down to every individual of his innumerable people that he has redeemed. And everything else in all of history. Now consider this in a very personal manner, Christian. Psalm 139, 17. Listen to him. Listen to David again. How precious are, how precious to me are your thoughts? How precious to me are your thoughts, O God? How vast is the sum of them? Have you ever considered, Christian, this concerning yourself? Do you know Christ today? If yes, Think about this. Think about the depths of God's thoughts towards you. That he ordained that you hear the gospel of Christ at the time you heard it. And that you come to faith at the time that you did. And every other little detail that coincides with that. We can't wrap our minds about such things. Should these thoughts not cause us to be thankful and praise him with all of our being and breath? Absolutely. Now, upon thinking of such deep thoughts the Lord, has, the Lord has towards us, we can't help but wonder why are the works of the Lord so rich towards his people? Well, the answer is what he said in verse number one. Because of his steadfast love. Steadfast means it's unbreaking, it's unchanging, it's, it's firm. This steadfast love is his covenant love towards his people. Why did God set his love upon his people? It is not because of anything in them to make them worthy of such. You understand that there's no such thing as earning the love of God. The love of God is an aspect of grace. Getting something you don't deserve and getting something you could not earn. And here's what God said through the prophet Jeremiah. 31.3, he said, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. 
Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. An everlasting love. Guess what an everlasting love is? It's a love that has no beginning and no ending. That is the steadfast love in view. You see, this everlasting love is steadfast from eternity past to eternity future upon all of God's people in Christ. It is from this love that His goodness flows to us in every way at every day. David again says in Psalm 34, 8, Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. Blessed is the man who takes refuge in Him. God is good, friend. What can only be the right response to such a gracious and good God? It must be thankfulness and praise. Notice with me number two as we continue in the text. We see the psalmist's assertion of praise. That is what we must do. We must thank him. We must praise him. But notice he gives more reason for this. Notice the psalmist's anticipation of victory. Of victory. But this is going to tie into the reality of what we experience in life. Wickedness, enemies, sin. Notice letter A, firstly, that the wicked oppose God and his people. That is what he brings out of this text. The wicked oppose God and his people. Now, you continue through this. He's focusing here on the wicked for a moment. Look at verse 6. He says, the stupid man cannot know, the fool cannot understand this. Now, we teach our kids not to call each other or anyone else stupid. For good reason, right? It's not real nice, because I know when it's coming from a kid, they're meaning it in a real not nice kind of way, right? But here in the scriptures, it is a completely accurate thing to say. The first description here means that they are dull. Understanding what stupid means, it means dull. Elsewhere, it's used of beasts or cattle that are insensitive to the right things. The second word is a common word for the fool in wisdom literature. He is stubborn and spiritually senseless, even though he may be intelligent. These are unbelievers who willfully or ignorantly do not embrace divine truth. Their thoughts on the nature and work of God are but folly. Do we have any people that are like this in the world? Absolutely we do. Many. Many are foolish because they follow their own sinful hearts. They are senseless in their understanding when it comes to spiritual things. This is the reason we need the grace of God. Because every single one of us, all of us who are saved today, that was us. That's what depravity has done to us. Man in his heart is obstinate against God by his own nature. He does not like to hear the things of God. He runs the other direction because what God is and what he teaches and what he reveals contradicts him in his nature. The fool does not see God for who he truly is, that he is the holy, righteous, good, sovereign over the world who gives all good things to his creation. The wicked do not thank the Lord as he deserves or praise him as he demands. We see this often in our own day. Paul warned Timothy about this kind of reflection in people. 2 Timothy 3, 2 through 5, he said, People will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. Notice this little one in here, ungrateful or unthankful. 
unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with, with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its, denying its power. It says avoid such people. It is contradictory for those who reject God or turn away from God to give thanks. It's an oxymoron. Those who say, oh, there's no God, but yet they still give thanks. Who do you thank? You understand there must be a source. There is a source through which all goodness and blessings flow. Richard Baxter rightly comments here. He says, an unthankful person is but a devourer of mercies and a grave to bury them in, and one that hath not the wit and honesty to know and acknowledge the hand that giveth them. You see, the world is full of unthankful. And unholy people, as we see in this text and as we witness in our society. And in such a state of foolishness, here's what else they do not see. Not only do they not see God for who He is and the thanks that He's worthy of, they don't see God's character or their own nature. And in such, they as wicked sinners, they do not see that they rush forward to their own destruction. Even though they may appear to be intelligent. Even though they may appear to be prosperous in this temporal world. They're running forward headlong with blinders on. And this is why we proclaim the gospel to every person because we want people to see that you're not some cosmic accident running to nothingness, that you're created, that you have purpose, that you have meaning, that there's a a Lord and King and Savior who redeemed sinners like you and like me. The Christian is no better than them. The only difference in our life is grace. That is what it all boils down to, friend. Verse 7, look at what he says. The psalmist says that though the wicked sprout like grass and all evildoers flourish, they are doomed to destruction forever. You see, this ties into the plans and thoughts of God. It's to destroy the wicked with righteous judgment. You say, well, why would he destroy them? Because they are enemies of God and his people. They deserve the just punishment of His wrath because of their sin. And this is the gospel need, friend, that we in our nature, we are sinful. You don't have to teach us how to sin. We just sin every day of our life. There's one thing we're good at, and it is sinning. We're not good at doing good. The Bible says there's none good. No, not one. And as a sinner in such a state, we are hostile to God, whether we realize it or not. Romans 8, 7, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. This hostility manifests itself in various ways, some more extreme than others. I don't know if you read or saw in the news that just this past week there was a man who was preaching in Arizona. He was out on a sidewalk somewhere preaching and somebody just randomly comes up and shoots him in the head. He's in critical condition right now. While his wife and young children pray for his miraculous recovery. He's out there preaching to sinners, hoping they'll listen, that God would work in them so that they may see the truth of their own need of Christ. They're going to die. And what are they going to what, They're going to die because of sin. And what do they need? They need salvation, right? But the hostility comes out here. This hostility of mind is expressed towards them. 
Now, it's not always that extreme. Sometimes it's just someone who simply does not want God in the gospel to reject it with all of their might. All of their might. They may just leave Christians alone, let them do their thing, but in their heart, they do not want God. But it makes no difference whether they're outwardly hostile in a great way or inwardly hostile in a subtle way. The end is the same for the wicked. It is eternal judgment. And this is where the psalmist makes clear that though the wicked oppose God and his people, they cannot affect or change God's sovereign authority and reign to do as he pleases. Verse 8 and 9, listen to this. But you, O Lord, are high on high forever. For behold, your enemies, O Lord, for behold, your enemies shall perish. All evildoers shall be scattered. It doesn't matter what the wicked world around us thinks about God, really, because it doesn't change who God is, does it? It doesn't change his nature. It doesn't change who he is. It doesn't change that judgment is coming. Now, we think of this and look at it in light of the text of Scripture. Should the sovereign reign and justice of the Lord be something that we thank him and praise him for? Absolutely, it should be. Absolutely, it should. Listen to the saints who sing and praise in such a way in Revelation 11, 16 through 18. He says, And the 24 elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We do what? We give thanks to you. What are they giving thanks to God for? We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and the saints, and those who fear your name, both small and great, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. The saints praise and thank God for his justice and sovereignty and his reign. This is what we must do. We thank the Lord that he's just. Because if God was not just, what would be the outcome? There would be no punishment at all for evil. Evil would run rampant. There would be no hope for any kind of true justice. Which brings us to the next aspect for which we are thankful. And that's letter B. Is that the Lord is the victor for his people. Christian, you understand how greatly this applies to you. You have victory today only because of Christ Jesus the Lord. Otherwise, we're on the other side of the fence. Verse 10, the psalmist says, But you have exalted my horn like that of the wild ox. You have poured over me fresh oil. Now understand, he's using some imagery here to convey a meaning, a message. The horn here was a symbol of power in biblical text. It was used frequently for kings and Blessing, victory, fresh oil indicates God's anointing of this person, his presence and exalting them and helping them. And here's what you and I as God's people anticipate. We anticipate and expect that God will fulfill his plans, his deep works that are grounded in his very character of who he is. That he will save sinners who repent, but he will bring judgment on sinners who refuse. You see, he is a God who guarantees the victory of his people. Verse 11, look at what the psalmist says. My eyes have seen the downfall of my enemies. My ears have heard the doom of my evil assailants. 
You look at what his heart is expressing. This particular psalmist, he has experienced the Lord granting him victory in his life, seeing his enemies put down. Perhaps maybe you have experienced such a thing. You've gone through something that was a hardship and you've had victory through it. Why did you have victory through that? Because of the Lord alone. All of this flows from God's goodness. But there's a bigger picture here I don't want you to miss. There's a bigger picture here with the psalmist. Is this view of the enemy's defeat not true for all of God's people in Christ today? It is. Say, why? Have you considered the fact that we have already read the end of the story? We're not waiting and anticipating with a question mark of what's going to happen at the end of the world or what happens with history or what happens with eternity. You and I have the end of the story. And it's not just a story. It is history written in advance for us by the sovereign God who transcends time and is eternal, who governs all things. He says, my eyes have seen this. And Christian, understand, you and I have seen this in Christ. We see the triumph of our Lord. We see the triumph of our Lord. We see this this from his authoritative word of the almighty sovereign, what the end is for us and for the wicked. You understand that this applies to all of Christ and his people. This applies to all the enemies that we may face, whether visible or Wicked sinners around us or invisible satanic spiritual forces among us. All the enemies of God will receive the proper justice they are worthy of. And God's people will emerge triumphant. And why is that, Christian? It is only because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You say, well, what is the gospel of Jesus Christ? Gospel means good news, and it's the good news. That Christ the Lord has stepped into this world and lived perfectly and sinlessly, willfully giving his life as an atonement to pay the just penalty we deserve with his own death on the cross. And that by way of his death, he bore God's wrath on himself for those who believe. But his death was not the end. Buried and risen three days later, he triumphed over that great enemy we know as death. You understand there's not a person in this room who's going to be able to go and overcome death. There's not a person who's not going to be escaping that reality, right? It's an enemy. It's been the enemy. It's the result of sin. Sin is an enemy. Satan is an enemy. Death is an enemy. And guess what Christ has done, Christian? He has conquered and overcome them all. Rejoice today. The reason you have victory is because of Christ, friend. Look at Colossians chapter 2 for a moment. Chapter 2, verse 13 through 15. And notice what Paul says here to the Christians in Colossae. He says to them in verse 13, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. How do you do that? By canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. 
by triumphing over them in him. Christ overcame sin. He lived the life that I could never live. It's impossible for me to live sinlessly. It's impossible for me to please God. But Christ did that for me. He overcame Satan and a foe that I can't overcome of my own flesh and will. He overcame death. Something no man has ever overcome in the history of humanity. You see, our enemies, no matter who or what they may be, are indeed crushed under the mighty foot of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. What greater display of goodness and grace could be known to us? There is none. Notice the psalmist continues to describe these deep thoughts. Let me come through this quickly. In verse 12, notice what he says about the righteous. It says, The righteous flourish like a palm tree and grow like a cedar in Lebanon. See, these figures that he's using of the palm tree and cedar of Lebanon, they emphasize the strength and stability of life with God. That he makes them firm and stable. They are pictures of life and vigor. You see, this is what God has given to his people who trust him. He continues this. Proverbs eleven twenty eight. Whoever trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like a green leaf. Many people trust in a multitude of things, but you understand there is no true stability or salvation but in Christ alone. This is the promise to believers that we may experience this in this life and also in the one to come. Verse 13, they are planted in the house of the Lord. They flourish in the courts of our God. Again, the imagery of being planted, rooted. You look at what the psalmist is saying here regarding his people. But notice also that he concludes this imagery in verse 14 and 15. He says, they still bear fruit in old age. They are ever full of sap and green to declare that the Lord is upright. He is my rock and there is no unrighteousness in him. What does that manifest to us? It manifests to us the longevity of God's people. That even in their old age, they are still fruitful for Him. Because God has never done working on you so long as you are living in this world. Never forget that. Never forget that. We see the glory of God here. We see the deep thoughts and great works of God towards his people of Christ. And again, what does this bring us to do? Number three, and lastly, just by way of application, not much time here, I promise. You see the psalmist's application for Christians, and here's two applications I want us to glean from this whole passage, is that we, as our, in our own hearts, we should resolve to thank and praise the Lord routinely. Resolve to thank and praise him routinely. Verse 1, it is good to give thanks to the Most High. It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to the Most High. That is what we must do. We give thanks to the Lord because it is good and right to do so. All good that we have and experience in this life flows from Him. The psalmist says in one, Psalm 136, 1-3, Give thanks to the Lord, for He's good. For steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Thankfulness must permeate our hearts. Thomas Goodwin said, what thankfulness is, it is a free rendering to God the glory of his goodness 
principally to the end we may glorify it and testify our love to him. But lastly, not only must we resolve to be thankful and praise him, we must remember his glory must be declared. For that is the reason we exist. What is the chief end of man? It is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The fundamental reason that the Lord preserves and blesses our life in this world, even unto old age, is this, that his people declare his glory and righteousness to the world. That's what verse 14 and 15 book in for us. Because he's the one who has made us triumphant. He's the one who has given us the victory in Christ. We were dead in sins, lost, headed for judgment, blind, had no clue what we were doing. But he turned the light bulb on. Gave us a new heart in Christ. And gave us victory over sin, death, and hell. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 Paul says, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. <laughs> what a beautiful text that is. See, every believer must live in light of the glory of Christ regardless of how dark it may be around us. I don't think you would agree that we have some dark days around us. We see an increase in hostility. But the darker the night, friend, the brighter the light. The brighter we may shine for Christ as we thank Him and praise Him. You see, God is good to us at all times, whether it's dark or not. He is good at all times, and His goodness will bring about the final victory for us in the end. And with this, I closed with one quote from Spurgeon I thought was fitting to add here. Charles Spurgeon says, When others behave badly to us, it should only stir us up more heartily to give thanks unto the Lord. Why? Because He's good. And when we ourselves are conscious that we are far from being good, we should only the more reverently bless Him that He is good. We must never tolerate an instant's unbelief as to the goodness of the Lord. Whatever else may be questioned, this is absolutely certain that Jehovah is good. His dispensations may vary, but His nature always is always the same. Will you give thanks to the Lord today? Will you praise Him as you ought to praise Him in your life? May this be a continual reminder for us from this psalm that it is good to praise the Lord. It is good to give thanks to Him for all that He is and all that He has done on our behalf. Let's stand our feet as we close in prayer.